Welcome back to the Alpha Females Invest podcast, two females working in the finance industry searching for alpha. My name is Clooney. And my name is Emily, and together we bring diversified perspectives from the buy and sell side of the finance world. As usual, any information discussed in this podcast is not financial advice. All opinions reflect those of the individuals, and this podcast is for educational purposes only. You should always read the PDS and talk to a financial advisor who can consider your personal circumstances before you invest. Today, we are very excited to have in person Dania Zinarova, who is the Portfolio Manager of the Wilson Asset Manager Alternative Asset Fund. Dania has held senior roles in Australia, the US, Europe and the UK throughout her 24-year career. Most recently, she held the position of Director of Manager Research in Australia, Head of Real Assets, Australia at Willis Tower Watson. And prior to this, Dania held various real asset investment roles with Willis Towers Watson in London and New York. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Great. Well, we like to start the episode the same way in every single one of our episodes so far. And that is, could you please share with us your most embarrassing career moment? Gosh, uh, actually, <laughs> I had to laugh, you know, just thinking about all the embarrassing career moments. <laughs> Safe to say we've had um, a few. Yeah. yeah, so I could think about one that was pretty embarrassing. So I was starting at Willis Stars Watson in London, and my first day was the day of the Global Manager Research Summit, basically when the whole global team, investment team gets together in London. And we had an exercise to kick off just to get to know each other. And I was sitting next to global head of private equity team. So one of the questions, what's your favorite movie? <laughs> and I turned to him and I say, born. And uh, he thought that it was um, something different. So he went like, completely red. <laughs> And oh, wow. just kept staring at me. <laughs> <laughs> and then suddenly I realized what he thought. So I had to clarify myself that I was actually into spy movies. <laughs> Not Imagine something saying different. that as a legitimate response. Gosh, yes, that was, um, we still laugh. Like, you know, you're always like, yeah, that, uh, yeah. I like your movies. <laughs> I love that that was where his mind first uh, went I to, know. actually. I think that's your first assumption. <laughs> that's a great one. And as Em and I have said, we've had plenty of fun and, and sort of fruitful stories. I'd love to know, just to kick it off and, and to get to know you a little bit better, was becoming a portfolio manager always a career aspiration for you or have you taken a few twists and turns and, and ended up here? Yeah, definitely quite a few twists and turns. I was initially really interested in banking, and that was mainly driven by all the changes to the banking system at the time when I was finishing the university. And I actually went, like, my degree was focused predominantly on banking. And I remember going on trips when I was younger with my father to Germany, and he would always take me to the bank with whom he was doing the business, Deutsche Bank, Deutsche Bank it was. And I would look around and I would think, oh, I would love to be head of global Deutsche Bank <laughs> or something like that. Like I just literally remember I was probably like 14 or 15 years old. That sector interested me a lot because I really saw it as the foundation of the financial industry. 
But also, that's why I'm so excited that you're doing this podcast, because I just didn't know, didn't have enough knowledge about other potential career path within the financial industry. Only over time, when I moved to London, I realized, gosh, it's actually not only about investment banks or funds management. It's much broader than that. So I did um, had a bit of a kind of sidestep at one point when I went into business management consulting and fairly quickly realized, I think I stayed there for about nine months, that it wasn't really for me. So went back into investment world after that. It's really interesting to hear you say that you originally thought you were going to go into banking because just before we started recording, we were saying that most people just think that's what a career in finance looks like. Even myself, I have been quoted on another podcast before. (laughs) When I was 16, my aspiration was to be head of Macquarie Bank or CEO of Macquarie Bank. So (laughs) similar, similar. Um, But it's great to hear that, you know, there are so many different elements of finance and, you know, even people in finance move to different sectors like yourself. So let's dive into the product that you look after. So you manage the WAM Alternative Assets Fund, and that fund's all about providing exposure to real assets, private equity, and real estate. I guess as a start, can we chat about what is a real asset? Yeah, sure. So what's important when we talk about WMA's portfolio is to understand the definition when we are talking about alternative investing, and I often talk to our shareholders, to the market participants, this is the only leak listed investment company listed on SX that provides diversification across alternative assets. Now, the next question is always, like, what are alternative assets? I define alternative assets mainly as investments that are backed by assets. So we're talking about predominantly tangible assets from which we can derive value as investors. And that's a very broad opportunity set. It does include the portfolio currently includes private equity, venture capital, real assets. Within real assets, we can include agriculture, water rights, timber, other more esoteric strategies, real estate, infrastructure, private debt, So it's a pretty diverse opportunity set and it's very rare that an investor can get single point access to this opportunity set. I saw that you were focusing quite a lot on real assets. Real Mm -hmm. assets is one part of the portfolio. Mm. So the portfolio is quite broad. I think that's an interesting sort of thought piece given real assets is just one component and you touched on that you know real assets is anything that's sort of anything you know, not listed don't invest in illiquid um no but you said you know you can derive real value from them i guess second to emma's question how do you determine the value of these assets and you know from a valuation perspective we've spoken a lot about that on our podcast how do you value a stock mm-hmm. How do you value a real asset then and the remainder in the portfolio? Exactly. Particularly as they are more illiquid and they might not have direct comps, right? Absolutely. Yes. So it's it's very different evaluation approach. I would start maybe first with frequency of valuations. And this is one of the differentiating factors for alternative investing. When we talk about what are the benefits, like one of the benefits is much lower volatility than 
public equity or the traditional asset classes because when we look at the stock market and you know it even better than I in terms of the volatility within the day, how valuation can change and then day-to-day volatility. While with alternative assets, illiquid, real, tangible assets, valuations are usually done on an annual basis. In some cases, valuations would be updated on a six-monthly basis. Some of the strategies or some of the sectors, like, for example, unlisted infrastructure, they tend to have more frequent, let's say, quarterly valuations done internally, and then annual valuation is done by third-party value. So this is an important point that those valuations, they need to be subjective and independent. So when evaluation is done by an investment team, you know, there are certain questions on the independence and it's usually independent valuers who are specializing in different asset classes. They're the ones who would be doing it. So imagine daily volatility or even the volatility within the day in terms of the valuations versus annual changes of the valuations very different cycle. In terms of the approaches, usually we would talk about three main approaches. So when an investment is just done, it's very normal to hold it at cost. And it's very usual to see within private equity or venture capital that initially for the first 12 months, an investment would be held at cost. The second valuation approach is discounted cash flow. Then again, what's important to understand is what asset class we're looking at. DCF is less likely to be used within private equity. We did see it during the pandemic because so many businesses, they were literally burning cash rather than generating cash. So uh, many private equity investors, they switched to DCF. In private equity or the likes, most commonly used valuation approach is market comparables, is when we look at similar transactions in the market, sometimes in rare circumstances, it's probably more common for venture capital, investors would look at listed equivalents. So there is actually a term, public market equivalent, PME, when we refer to that market comparable approach. So, look, when I think about WMA portfolio, given different set of asset classes, I can tell you all of these three approaches are being used. And what's usually done by independent valuers, they produce a very detailed evaluation report, which often goes through all three approaches. And this is done to run this sense check. If it's a market comparable approach and it's 40% different or like higher or lower from DCF or from the market transaction, then there are questions, are we looking at the right elements when we do the DCF? Are we using the right input? And then usually what happens, there is a range. There is a lower valuation and the higher valuation. Valuers usually would recommend something in the middle, and then it's down to the investment team, which one would they adopt. Within private equity, often you would see that valuations adopted would be more conservative. 
so at the lower end. And this is because there is a very clear link with their incentive structure. Performance fee within private equity is often only paid on exit. So for the investment team, there is really no incentive to try and adopt higher valuation than what they currently hold the investment within the portfolio. I know it's a very detailed answer, but the question is really important for alternative investing. And um, I think investors who are looking at those asset classes, they do need to have at least basic knowledge of what are the three key valuation approaches. It's interesting, and there's a lot to take in and unpack there. I might just take a sidestep for a second. And you mentioned that, you know, typically there's lower volatility, but is that a function of the less frequent revaluation as opposed to the actual underlying value? So on the list of market, you know, as you mentioned, we can have interday changes in valuation and that's the market perceived value, but you're not getting that in necessarily the real asset space. So the lower volatility, is that just a function of the change in revaluation or is it actually a lower volatile asset class? I would say both. And I wouldn't necessarily agree that if we look at a stock and we see volatility within the day or like changes of, within, of the valuations like day to day, that means that the value of the assets, if it's assets-backed business, are changing If we start unpacking what's included or what's driving the volatility of the listed company, I would say on average currently about 75% would be market noise. It doesn't mean that, let's say, we look at some of the larger real estate investment trust REITs Mm -hmm. in Australia. I'm picking those because they are all asset-backed, right? They would hold a portfolio of 100 or more properties. Now, if the valuation changes by 10% day to day, it doesn't mean the value of the underlying assets does. Within alternative investing, the investment horizon is also much longer than in listed asset classes. And we are talking here about 5 to 10 to 12 years. In fact, there are some strategies that would have lock-in for 22 years. And investors who are sophisticated investors who understand the underlying drivers of those investments, they are very comfortable with those long-term investment horizons. Now, it's unlikely the same can be said about investors who are just focusing on more traditional asset class like fixed income and equities. I think that's also a big difference in terms of how you measure the risks or what risk factors are involved in in these two different asset classes. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point. And, you know, being in the market space, I I understand that volatility day to day. And as you say, often the value of Goodman's actual freestanding building has not changed. Exactly. But there is a lot of movement associated with management, with market movements, with, you know, results of other companies. They can drag down or up another company's results. So I think that's a really interesting point for people that do see the market as being quite volatile. Maybe this is a different avenue. So turning a little bit, you did say that, you know, the return timeframe can be a lot longer on these types of assets. Mm -hmm. I noticed that you guys target an absolute return What does that mean? And could you tell us a little bit about how performance has been over time? Yeah, so um, 
actually what we communicate to our shareholders and to the market that the goal of WMA is to deliver an investment return that would be driven by income and capital appreciation. And the key point or the key attraction point for WMA is its diversification benefits and the stability of the income return. The stability because the company is structured as listed investment company and we have very long-term sustainable over the years dividend policy where we are focusing on our profit reserves and our ability to cover the dividends for at least the next three to four years. So we do have a lot of visibility, what we can pay and how our profit reserve behaves over time, what dividend coverage ratio we have. When we assess the portfolio from the investment return perspective, then we would look at, you know, we say like market comparables, what's an average core alternative investments return within the Australian market. So on average, over the last, let's say, 10 to 15 years, and we're talking about core strategy, it would be around 8%. So for our internal purposes, when we look how we are going in terms of the performance, we would sometimes refer to that average. However, we don't have the actual hard hurdle or the actual target that we would define and we need to beat this benchmark. When I look at the investment performance since inception, when Wilson Asset Management took over the management rights for the portfolio, which happened in October 2020, the investment return was over 17%. So it's been... Is that per year or since per, the... Per year, yeah. which has been driven a lot by capital appreciation, but at the same time, a good component of income return. And this is when I think about the future of the portfolio and the objective that they have is to ensure there is about 40% of core income generating investments within the portfolio. And then 60% is growth investments that would deliver predominantly capital appreciation. So this provides a better balance in terms of the risk profile and the return within the portfolio. And this is not the only thing that you would look at when you assess LAC, because you also have total shareholder return when you take into account where is the share price from the time that you invested to the time that you're in now. So to put it in the perspective, for the last financial year, the total shareholder return was 46.5%. This is because the share price was um, trading a discount to NTA. And so investors who got in in 2020, and then if they realized that return, that was a pretty attractive <laughs> return. Yeah, March 2020 was a good time to get into the yeah. market. <laughs> so you, you talk about 40% of the portfolio target to be income generating assets. I guess we'd be interested to understand 
Is the way to think about this split up by asset class or is it more this particular asset? So what I mean, I guess, is is there a particular yield versus capital return for, you know, in between real assets, private equity and real estate? Yes, yes. Good question. So nearly within each asset class, you'd be able to split strategies by core value and opportunistic. So when we talk about core strategies, we are basically talking about investing in mature, established assets, what some investors refer to as brownfield assets without any development risk, and lower use of leverage, you know, pretty hands-off asset management, just income generating with long contracts in place. These would be asset classes such as real estate, infrastructure, real some of the real assets, not all real assets, potentially some of the private debt, in particular when we talk about senior debt. All the rest, private equity, venture capital, they would be in the growth category. However, they won't be the only ones because there are also some opportunistic strategies within infrastructure, opportunistic strategies within real estate. So some asset classes can offer only certain risk return profile, while others can be quite broad in terms of the opportunity set. Yeah, that's really interesting in terms of the risk return profile. You know, I think we've spoken about the benefits of having an exposure to this type of asset class in the sense that it is much lower volatility. There's a longer term horizon here. You can see real gains. Would you consider it to be an illiquid asset class because of this inability to trade daily? And do you think investors should add a risk premium onto it for that Definitely. specific reason? Definitely, yes. I'm hearing some CFA there, clearly. <laughs> this is what I was like, yeah, oh, this is, you know, music to my ears. Um, look, w- when we talk about different risk premium, liquidity is definitely one of the bigger areas where you want to see additional premium when, mm-hmm. when you take this liquidity. Other factors that you'd look at would be skill, alpha potential. And just thinking about your question, is it because you can't trade when you invest in those assets on a daily basis? Yes. It's also because of the strategy that you'd usually implement as an investor. The idea is, let's say we're talking about one of the portfolio companies within private equity. The idea is not to buy well and then sell well the next day. The idea is to buy well, obviously, you know, you need to be very disciplined on pricing as an investor. But where the actual skill comes in is how you implement, be it growth strategy, buyout strategy, turnaround strategy. What are your skills to implement the strategy? If you're buying, let's say, fast food um, chain as a private equity growth investor, one of the goals would be to either grow the business through other M&A transactions and add-on businesses across different states or even outside Australia? Or is the business more of a turnaround where you're basically tasked with restructuring a very complex business and then selling separate parts? So the strategy itself within alternative assets requires this long time horizon to implement and then to realize the value. 
Which kind of leads on to our next question, which is what happens when you decide to exit an investment and how quickly can you execute on that exit? I would say it really depends on the asset class first. It depends on the market condition second. So if it's an infrastructure asset, let's say one of the major airports or ports, and it's a competitive auction, it may take three to six months to basically from the start of the process until the transaction is settled. If we're talking about real estate, let's say an office building in Sydney CBD, sometimes it can take a month or two months to settle the transaction. So it's very asset class specific, and I would even say it's very asset specific. The timing is also very important. So going back to your previous comment, when we talk about the risk premium and other factors influencing the premium, that's also the skill. Right, to time when to exit. Let's say, as an example, within WMA, we had a very interesting business, Better Medical, which was basically a portfolio of GP clinics. Now, healthcare investments is a hot topic across asset classes, in private equity in particular, because it's really difficult to get hold of those assets, and there was a lot of competition. So as an investor, you would look at the market, how competitive is the market? Are there more buyers than sellers? Who are the groups? What is my exit strategy? Is it IPO? Then I depend on the listed market. Let's have a look at the listed market. How are IPOs um, going at the moment? Is it a strategic buyer? Is it a trade buyer? All those options need to be considered. Private equity, often they don't like to publicly say what is their official exit strategy because then obviously if, I wouldn't call the name, but I was talking to someone and they said somehow information leaked to press that they were going after trade buyers. Now that impacts their price because trade buyers, they don't tend to pay as well as a strategic buyer within private equity. So that's another feature of the market, the information inefficiency. You know, it's all about who is your network, what are your connections, you know, how well you can negotiate with people. It's such a different story how this type of transactions happen within the public markets. You touched on healthcare being a really hot topic and, you know, it's clear that we've just been through a two-year pandemic. We're now in an endemic, I believe the right terminology is, but clearly healthcare has been a huge trend. Are there some other trends that you see coming to the forefront of investors' minds this year and perhaps could you enlighten us on what they might be? Yeah, I probably won't surprise you with this, but uh, digitalization is definitely a big trend and I expect that it will only continue. We'll see more transactions in this space within venture capital, within private equity, even within infrastructure. Investors talking now about digital infrastructure. While five years ago, it was predominantly private equity players who would be active in that space. Digitalization, I, I would also say climate change decarbonization theme that's becoming 
really one of the key topics. And what was interesting to observe this year, that certain geopolitical events started pushing both governments and private investors to really reactivate and ask themselves questions. How can we diversify our energy sources? Because what's obvious now, <laughs> how our society is dependent, dependent. exactly dependent yeah. on commodities. Well, I feel like we've been talking for over a decade about renewable energy or alternative energy sources. So while, of course, it's very sad and horrible to see those events happening in Europe now, at the same time, looking at this, I feel optimistic that we might have a much better progress over the next 12 to 24 months. And this is, you know, climate change and technology related because lots of those sectors, they would require innovation. It's interesting because I, I have the same view. I think it makes complete sense for companies to be investing in renewable energy. But some people do push back on that and say that actually it brings a case to not shut down your coal plants by 2030 in yeah. line with the Paris Agreement because we have this energy crisis. So it's an interesting debate. But back to the topic, <laughs> yeah. 2021 was obviously a very big year for mergers and acquisitions and transactions. Do you expect that 2022 will also be as buoyant? I was expecting that to happen. So <laughs> I actually, I remember in January, I was looking at one report in Australia only last year, we had about 120 billion in M&A activities. So everyone like suddenly just reactivated. And many people were expecting that 2022 will continue being as busy as last year. The start hasn't been as busy. And this could be also because of those geopolitical events that are happening in Europe now and this impact on global economies. You know, everyone is asking the questions, what does it mean? Does it mean the commodity prices will continue going up? What does it mean in terms of the inflation? I had uh, an interview, actually, I have to watch it again. <laughs> it was in January with uh, Bloomberg News and they asked me a question about inflation and interest rates. And I was really optimistic at that time. I'm still probably more optimistic than most investors, in particular who are active within public markets, because I think public markets, they pick up this information much quicker. I do think after seeing, you know, federal budget, we have inflation under control. And, you know, even if it's about 4% a year, it won't be the same as in the US. And then... Australian economy is still quite an isolated, self-sufficient economy. So again, we might see interest rates going up, um, maybe 50 basis points, but I don't expect it will be out of control like in, in other global markets. Important thing, I'm biased, of course, but important thing, alternative investing can serve as a natural inflation hedge. Because if we look at some asset classes like real estate or infrastructure, within real estate, rents are usually linked to CPI. Within infrastructure, when we look at long contractual revenues, they are often linked to CPI as well, and similar to interest rates. So um, in terms of the investment portfolios, it's actually for any investor, you know, be it a retail or institutional investor, having this diversity and having this potential, you know, inflation protection 
is a really good thing. Yeah, that's definitely a key benefit, I think, of this area. And, you know, I know in um, many conversations in the finance industry, inflation is a hot topic and, you know, you get the bears and the bulls and some people think rates are increasing exponentially and others like yourself are a little bit more on the conservative side. We might turn back specifically to the funds now and I think we would love to hear a couple of investment examples of maybe some of your best performers in the funds. There are quite a few. I would perhaps first explain how the fund is structured. So we are now in what we call revitalizing the whole strategy or the whole portfolio. So when we took over the management rights of the portfolio, I did the analysis on the underlying investments. And what became obvious that majority of the investments in the portfolio, they are maturing. So basically, you might be familiar with the definition vintage. So within private equity and venture capital, vintage is about 2016, 2017, which means now we are seeing more and more exits from those investments. And there are um, really attractive returns. You know, if I think about the exits that we had so far, most of them were above carrying value. And, you know, thesis on healthcare played out really well. We had a really strong exit when um, the transaction on Better Medical happened last year. We had few strong exits. One was a property asset in New York, Manhattan, While the portfolio is predominantly focused on Australia, we do have some exposure overseas. And that was on the back of the fact that in areas like Manhattan, there are just no or not many new or refurbished office buildings. So that was a really good timing. Market reopening, everyone is going back to the office, everyone is looking for an upgrade. Excellent exit that we had on that asset. There was another exit on quality food services, That's kind of more of a theme that we have within the portfolio as well, increasing demand for food and more focus on that area. So over the next 12 to 18 months, there will be more exits coming through. I expect exits above carrying value for most of the investments. That's great to hear. And turning to your own personal work experience you know, we quoted in the bio that you've had experience in London, in New York, and of course, we're here in Sydney. We'd love to hear a bit about how investing can compare across regions at this stage. Clooney and I have only ever worked in Australia, so we'd love to hear about your experiences. Every market is unique. Um, Europe is probably the most difficult one to describe as one market because, you know, it's one thing you have experience of investing in any class in London, in terms of the dynamic, in terms of accounting standards, in terms of valuation approaches, the market dynamic, it would be very different from, let's say, Germany. Even within Germany, it would be different whether you're investing in Berlin or you're based in Berlin or you're based in Munich. It would be like different markets. So that was quite interesting when I was um, at Russell Investments and I was focusing on um, European and US real estate, like two different worlds, because US at that time when I was at Russell, it was already a very sophisticated, very advanced, very mature market. So I found it 
from my perspective as an investor, doing due diligence on investments in the U.S. was much easier. Very transparent, standard information that's accessible. It made it easier for me, um, you know, as an analyst, looking at the investments and comparing them when I was based in the U.S. and I had that experience while in Europe it was more fragmented and it really depended which markets you operate. And there were some European property funds that would invest across Germany, Italy, Spain, France, London. All of them, I remember that pretty clearly, had to have people on the ground, often with local language, local market knowledge, local connections doing an investment in property across Europe out of one office in London was extremely difficult and extremely challenging. So very unique experience. Again, like I spent a bit of time in Asia as well. You know, Hong Kong from very different from Singapore. So learning from all those different experiences is definitely beneficial. And I always advise when I can or like when I mentor people, Go over your comfort zone and go and have experience in the U.S., go and have experience in Asia because this all makes your experience richer, makes it easier to judge in the future when you look at the risk-adjusted returns and compare. I couldn't agree with that comment more, Dania. You know, I think there's definitely a stage where Em and I would both love to go and work in a different market because, as you said, you pick up so many nuances and such a different dynamic from working with not only different markets but different culture, different yeah. people and the likes carry on. You touched on a little bit just then that sometimes when you mentor people, um, you know, that's a tip you give them. We always like to end our episodes with asking our speakers for their top career tip. So could you please share with us yours? Top career tip, my tip would be start early with determining your career goals. And please do not focus just on your career when doing so, but take into account your personal life, your interests, your aspirations and what drives you as a person. So having this bigger picture, basically what I call zoom out when thinking about your career is extremely important. I would also say there are a lot of uh, publications now being done on that. And I think one of the latest one was by CFA Institute here in Australia they were talking about T-shaped careers. So basically, when we look at our world now, it's much more complex than it was when I was starting my career. And in the past, we tended to think about quite narrow technical areas where we had to excel, or at least we felt that this is where I had to excel to achieve my career goals. Now, this has shifted to what they describe T-shaped financial professionals, where as the, the vertical line is your technical deep expertise in an area that you choose, and then the horizontal line includes your communication skills, your negotiation skills, your network, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So 
all those factors are becoming extremely important in today's world. And I think don't worry when you start the career and you think, is it the right choice? It's a progression. Yeah, I love that concept of of zoom out. You know, I do think people can become very focused on their little bubble or the little world they live in. And, you know, I think that's, as we discussed before the start of this podcast, one of the reasons we started it was really to help people understand that there are so many diverse careers within the financial realm. And, you know, that extends to so many different areas. So I think that's a really, a really great tip on, you know, zooming out, think about your career as a T-shape and opportunities will present themselves. So I just wanted to say on behalf of Em and I, thank you so much for doing the episode with us today. I know I've really learned enjoying about the real asset class and, you know, specifically, I guess, um, private equity to a different degree. It's very different to what we do. So it's always interesting to have another diverse perspective and I'm sure our listeners really enjoyed it too. So thank you, Dania. Thanks, Dania. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Alpha Females Invest podcast. If you like this episode, we would love your support on Instagram. You can find us at Alpha Females Invest. You could also leave a podcast review, but most importantly, please keep listening. See you next time.